الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وبعد so moving on from the uh, from the uh, the structure to talk about the first part of it which is the khilafa or the caliphate the job of a khalifa and the ministry and adjacent roles there as we would know that a khalifa or someone who's presiding the state has to have ministers someone who advises him and there are other jobs that are that are associated with the khalifa first of all the definition of khalifa as sidi abdul hay al-kittani rahimahullah highlights He says it's the office of the chief Muslim ruler who presides the state and arranges its mundane and religious affairs. So a khalifa is someone who has an office, or like he's, the, he's occupying that office, chief ruler in a Muslim, uh, in a state, and he supervises both the mundane, the dunya, related things, and the religious affairs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, O you who believe, should any of you turn back from his religion, then, and this is the backing of the khilaf of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, because the first khalifa in the history of Islam was Sayyidina Abu Bakr. So the backing of Sayyidina Abu Bakr's khilafa in the, is in the Qur'an, and this has been extracted by some ulama, is the ayah, يا أيها الذين آمنوا من يرتد منكم عن دينه فسوف يأتي الله بقوم يحبهم ويحبونه Oh you who believe should any of you turn back from his religion then know that Allah will bring forth instead of a people he will love and who will love him الحسن البصر رضي الله عنه who was from the tabi'een said by Allah this is Abu Bakr and his companions why? because when, when the Prophet ﷺ passed away Arabs have returned back. They left Islam. Many Arabs left Islam. And who brought them back to Islam? Who strove against them until they came back to Islam? Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu So the ayah relates to Sayyidina Abu Bakr or refers to Sayyidina Abu Bakr. There are loads of other ayat as well. We call, or the Khalifa is called the Supreme Imam. They call him Al-Imam Al-A'zam. In fiqh, Al-Imam Al-A'zam is Abu Hanifa. Al-Nu'man, Al-Imam Al-A'zam. But in Khilafa, Al-Imam Al-A'zam means the Imam that presides over all other Imams. So the, to, to distinguish between him and Imam Al-Salah, the Imam of Salah, the Imam of a Masjid, the Imam of an area. Huh? And that comes from uh, the ayah, قَالَ إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا The Imam here is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, an issue of deen and dunya. قَالَ إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا Sometimes they call him the Sultan as well. Sometimes they call that individual, that Khalifa, they call him the Sultan. And uh, they call him a Sultan because underneath that individual there will be a lot of kings or a lot of governors in different places. So sometimes they call the Khalifa a Sultan. The Sultan Abdul Hamid, Sultan Abdul Majid, you know, the Ottoman 
caliphs, they were called sultans. Why? Because there were a lot of wulah and a lot of kings. So the king in Egypt, the king in Iraq, the king in Hijaz, the king in here, but all of these kings were under the sultan. So he was the khalifa. Sometimes they call him uh, al-malik, right? But the uh, al-qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, uh, al-qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi says that the uh, the word king or, or or malik is actually not something that is supposed to be for the khalifa. It's the sultan or the imam al-a'zam or the khalifa that's more suitable for that individual. Why is that? They said that the difference between the malik and the khalifa is the khalifa takes money rightfully, takes money rightfully and distributes it rightfully. While the king takes money from people and he does not distribute it in a rightful way. And that's the difference. There is Imam Abi Abdullah al-Muqri al-Tilimsani said that some of his students asked him, how come that Muslims are always unfortunate with their kings? How come that Muslims are always unfortunate with their kings? Anyone who assumes the position of king or he forces himself upon people as a king, it is always bad. It's always unfortunate, uh, unfortunate for, his, for the people. He said, Because kingdom is the law for the people before us. The khilafa is the sharia for this ummah. While the previous nations... Huh, it was for them, it was kingdom. It was not khilafah. There was no khalifa. Why? Because remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, reminding them, reminding Banu Israel of his favors upon them, وَجَعَلَكُمْ مُلُوكَ And he made you into kings. And Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi salam, he asked Allah for kingdom. He said, قَالَ رَبِّ اغْفِرْ لِي وَهَبْ لِي Mulkan gave me kingdom. So when the Khilafah was taken away from its description, from its job, and became a mulk, it did not fit in. It's like someone who knows that a specific shoes or a specific suit will, 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 will suit him. But he doesn't like the color. So he decides to get a different color. But the different color is not in his size at all. So yes, he can enjoy the color, but it will always be irritating. It will either be too loose or too tight. So in the Khilafah, in fact, I, I, I would take from this that the Khilafah is not an outward. It's not a facade. It's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not a, a, a superficial, it's not a form. In reality, it's a meaning. That's why a lot of people today, uh, what we would call political Islam groups, they're talking about a frame. They're talking about Khilafah. When they call for the Khilafah, what they're calling for, they're calling for a form. They're not calling for a content. So whoever is in the leading position of a state or a country, and he establishes justice between people, he takes money rightfully, and he distributes money rightfully, and he makes sure that people are free to observe their religion and free to run their day-to-day -day life in a proper way, he's a khalif. <laughs> Regardless of 
whether he takes the title or not. But a lot of people today, they are harping the string that Muslims are without a Khalifa, Muslims are without a Khalifa, Muslims are without a Khalifa. Will gathering people under a form of confederacy or gathering the Muslim community under a form of cooperation or a representation. Muslims today, they don't like a, one individual to govern them, but they lack a, a unity. They lack unity. They don't have that, that, that form of unity. So in reality, uh, the Khalifa was also called Amirul Mu'mineen. But remember that the word Amirul Mu'mineen has been hijacked through history by people who were not actually Khulafa. Said Abdul Hayl Kittani mentions many people who call themselves Amirul Mu'mineen even though they were not the Khulafa. So he mentions Abdul Rahman ibn Muhammad al Umawi, who was called Abdul Rahman uh, from Al Andalus. He was he called himself Amirul Mu'mineen. Ubaidullah al Mahdi, who established the Fatimid, the Fatimid dynasty, he called himself Amirul Mu'mineen. Yusuf ibn Tashafin, who was the Imam of the Muwahideen dynasty, the Murabitin. The Murabitin dynasty. Abdul Mu'min ibn Ali, who was the Imam of the Muwahideen, he called himself Amir al Mu'mineen. Some Khawarij even called themselves Amir al Mu'mineen. Qatari ibn al Fuja'a, Qatari ibn al Fuja'a, who was the leader of the uh, 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 group of Khawarij called Al uh, Azariqa, he called himself Amir al Mu'mineen. Today we have Daesh, uh, we have ISIS, they call their leader Amir al Mu'mineen. So to say that the title is all has been is been specific to one individual no it has been appropriated by people so many have as as i as i mentioned here qatar ibn al-fuja'a and, and, and others it just indicates and it just tells us that uh, the issue of khilafa is not just a, a form is not just a position it is a meaning it is a what uh, it it is the it is the nature of the job and what is being done with that job that that actually decides whether the person is a khalifa of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam or not one of the so we, we mentioned this the khalifa takes rightfully and places money rightfully the king treats people unjustly taking from one and giving the other and the sultan he's a chief ruler so the khalifa can be called the sultan so it makes clear that Khilafah is not just a post that unifies Muslims. It is actually an office it's full of meaning. If we empty this office of its meaning, it becomes what? Kingship. It becomes kingship. Remember that we have what we call Al-Khulafah al-Rashidin. Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, and according to many historians, Imam al-Hassan, because he completed the 30 years after the Prophet and the Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Khilafatu Ba'di Thalatun. The Khilafah after me will be 30 for 30 years. The completion of that was by Imam Al-Hasan. Then it will be kingship, it will be kingdom. Well, during these years of kingdom, the Umayyads, they call themselves Al-Khilafah Al-Umawi. Isn't it? Even though it's not Khilaf, it was actually a dynasty, it was a kingdom. So Muawiyah and Yazid and Abdul Malik ibn Marwan and all of these were actually kings. Apparently they call themselves what? Al-Khalifa, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. Al-Khalifa. But in reality, they were kings. Because one of the essentials of the Khilafah is that authority is not given from a father to son. There is no crown prince. But that, that, that did not exist there. 
there was so much injustices. Same thing with the Khilaf al-Abbasi. Remember that for a huge chunk of history, of the history of Islam, the Khalifa in Baghdad, Abbasi Khalifa, was just a, a puppet. And there were so many other states and dynasties in the, Muslim, in the Muslim world. In Egypt, there was the Ayyubis. In Sham, there was so much fighting. In, uh, in, uh, in Morocco and in North Africa and in Al-Andalus, there were the Umayyads with the Abbasid. So in fact, the word Khilafah and claiming that Muslims were unified under, khila- under the Khilafah all the way is a Khilafah just in name. But the reality of it was was kingdom. We're talking about Khilafah now only. We haven't talked about ministry yet. Okay, Khilafah only. So is it because the the Muslims' territory spread, so therefore you had to encompass already the governance in the other area? Yes. That's why we incorporate these. Because I don't understand why we need three. Why do we need to have Khalifa, then the king, and then the sultan? No, no, no. I'm differentiating between the terms. I'm not saying that we had to have the three. But they could exist, for example. No. No, I'm talking about the Khalifa can be called the Sultan sometimes. Okay. Right? The Khalifa. No, these are three different words that are sometimes used and confused with each other. That are sometimes used and confused with each other. Mm-hmm. The Khalifa is sometimes historically called Sultan. Okay. Right? A king is someone who governs an area and he's normally presided by a sultan or by a khalifa. Mm. So there were Muslim royalties, for example. You have the kingdom of this and the kingdom of this and the kingdom of this. Even within the Ottoman, let's say, the Ottoman khilafa, even though it was an Ottoman dynasty, within the Ottoman Empire, there was the king of of India or or the the Sultan Sultan Mahmoud al-Ghaznawi, and the king of, of, of Egypt, and there was the king of today, there is the king of Morocco, there is the king of Saudi Arabia, there was a king of Iraq, there was Iraq and Syria. So there were different kingdoms. All of these kingdoms, in the end, they were under the, they were seeing the Khalifa or the Sultan. So the Khalifa and the Sultan are interchangeably. Yeah. But the king is under that. He's under that. Yeah. But what I'm saying now is the word Khalifa, which can also be the word Sultan, is should refer to an office rather than should refer to just a formula. Muslims today, they always talk about the Khilafah and 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 we have to restore the Khilafah. A lot of political uh, groups like Hezb al-Tahrir and the Muslim Brotherhood and all of these people, what they are after is how can we restore the Khilafah? What Khilafah are you talking about? Well, Muslims have had declines since the Khilafah. Muslims have had declines since they left the ways of the Prophet ﷺ. Muslims have had declines since 30 years after the Hijrah, 30 years after the Hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ. Since Imam al-Hasan gave it up and Muawiyah took it in a completely different direction, Muslims have had the declines ever since. Remember that it was during the Umayyads and the Abbasiyyin that Imam al-Shafi'i and Imam Abu Hanifa was beaten up. Sa'id ibn Jubair was killed by Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf in what we would call uh, an, an Islamic Khilafah. <laughs> the ulama were imprisoned and they were persecuted and the ulama had to shy away from the Sultan. 
Al-Izz ibn Abd al-Salam, and all of these ulama, they always had clashes with the Sultan. Well, yes, these ulama did not invite people to revolt or to go against the government because of a principle within Islamic tradition that Muslim, the role of Muslim scholars is to promote safety and peace in the society. And they know from experience that revolution always leads to bloodshed. <laughs> Why? Because you can't face a government if you are individual or even groups. We're not communists. In communism and these totalitarian uh, ideologies, you don't care about how much blood is going to be shed. As long as at the end, you will get to power, isn't it? But in Islam, the spiritual and the social and the, and the human paradigm is completely different. The life of a human being comes above government. In other paradigms, it's, it's the other way around. We have to have a specific system, a specific ideology. Islam has seen it from, a very big, from the very beginning and realized that even after the bloodshed to push someone to government, that person is possibly promoting certain slogans and certain big things. When they are in power, they are corrupted. They become corrupted. Why? Because power itself is a, is a corrupting component. If a person has any form of power in a small shop, <laughs> he feels corruption. When you seek power, that's enough to say you shouldn't be given it. The Prophet said to Abu Dhar, we don't give this to someone who asks for it. So it has to be understood from that. It's not an issue of being coward or taking a step back or you are accepting injustice and all of these things. You know, it is easy. Like, e people can easily chew these things and swallow them. I say, look, these ulama are so government-orientated. It's not about being government-orientated or people-orientated. Both are as evil as each other. You should, the ulama should not be listening to the people or listening to the government. They should be listening to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how Allah wants to see this, this universe. What is the best solution for, you know, when, when there is fights between people or between two groups, the best source of, uh, the, the best course of action is to try to separate them as much as you can or to try to bring peace as much as you can. This is the, this is the paradigm within, within Islam. Sometimes people disagree with that and other ideologies have come to say, no, in Islam we see Islah reform as coming from beneath upwards. <laughs> Other seed has come from top downwards. Well, you can have a very righteous man, right, in the leadership of the state. And in two years, corruption will conspire to make him fall, right? Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, radiallahu he was a righteous man. He was appointed by Salman, Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik, right? How many years has Umar ibn Abdul Aziz remained in power? Two years. Why? The whole society around him was a corrupt society. What did they do to him? They poisoned him. Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was not even 50 years when he died. They poisoned him. Why? Because the whole system was corrupt and there is only one man trying to fight all of this. So you need to understand that by putting, a, replacing the government, you're not solving the situation. You're just changing the the cover. <laughs> but the, all the trouble are, are the same. 
You need to change the whole society. A corrupt public servant or a group of corrupt public servants will conspire to make the president fall because his existence causes, is, is causing them trouble. They can't steal as they used to. They don't find the ease of taking things as they used to. So what you need to do is to change the society. The society you have to work hard on the society. And the change of society is not an easy thing. I'm not saying it's something that you can achieve in 20 years or 30 years. That is the struggle of the Muslimin. That's the struggle of reformers. That's the struggle of prophets. The struggle of the ulama. The struggle of the of the of the of the of the, the shuyukh, our spiritual path, taking people, purifying the human self from stealing. It's it's a tedious job. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not send these prophets just to say, okay, otherwise the Prophet would have accepted kingdom the first thing they offered him. He would have said, yes, let me be the king and then I can change the society from the top. No, that's not going to happen. That's not my, my aim. Because once he says, well, yes, I can be the king and let me change from the top. Then the society, they, they would have stopped him. What would you do with a king who is very righteous and you block him in his castle? Or a whole government that is completely dysfunctional because the people who are listening to the commands are not executing them. All of these things have to be in our minds because what happens is people with ideologies, they sell it very easily to, with, with big, bright, you know, <laughs> very, very bright slogans. Change with the deen. Well, yes, change with the deen from within, not from, the, from, from outside. So it's, it's clear that Islam is not after establishing a hollow position as claimed by fervent Islamists who reduce Islam to a political agenda. I call these people reductionists because they take Islam and they summarize it into, sum it up in a political project. We have a political, they say, we have a political project to change the society. Well, you can't change the society with a political project. Well, you can change the government with a political project. <laughs> you can be an opposition. You can be a labor or conservative or Tory or this or that. And you go to the to the to the voting system and accept what voting brings you today and it can get you out tomorrow but you want to change the society then you don't change them with a political project <laughs> politics is the last thing that can be changed right when you see the crown of a flower the crown of the flower is the last thing that grows in the flower everything else comes before so moving from that, there was a post similar to what we would call today the Prime Minister, or they say in, in English also the, the Grand Vizier. <laughs> that was in, in Turkish, the Grand Wazir, Vizier. That's an individual whose job, whose intellect and integrity are trustworthy and therefore consulted by the Khalifa or the person in power, the, the, the President, in matters that the latter faces. Obviously, this has moved into from an individual to a whole cabinet afterwards. It became, in an institutional system, it became a cabinet. And the, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it was Abu Bakr radiallahu anha. Aisha radiallahu anha, the hadith is sahih, read by Abu Dawood. When Allah desires good for a ruler, the Prophet said, when Allah desires good for a ruler, he appoints for him a sincere minister. You see that word, wazir, minister, in the hadith. Who will remind him if he forgets and helps him if he remembers? When Allah wishes 
for him, the contrary, he appoints for him a bad minister. And remember, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا مُوسَى بِآيَاتِنَا وَجَعَلْنَا مَعَهُ أَخَاهُ هَارُونَ وَزِيرًا And we have appointed his brother Aaron as a wazir, as a minister. It's actually from the word, the word wazir comes from the word wizr. <laughs> wizr in Arabic means uh, load. Because the wazir carries the load with the, with the khalifa or carries the load with the president. So the khilafa or the presidentship is a wizr, it's something heavy. Uh, so wizr is, is, is a load. Uh, he will remind him if he forgets. There is another uh, uh, hadith narrated by Sayyidina Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu. Imam al-Tirmidhi classes it as uh, sound hadith, Hassan. There is no prophet except that he has two ministers amongst the inhabitants of heavens and two ministers amongst the inhabitants of earth. As for my two ministers amongst the inhabitants of heavens, that's Jibreel and Mikael. And as for my ministers, two ministers from the inhabitants of earth, they are Abu Bakr and Umar. Well, that's a nas, that's a text, clear text, indicating that Abu Bakr and Umar in such an order are to be appointed after the Prophet Sallallahu as well. Because they were his ministers during his life. So they have a long experience in, uh, in that. Some adjacent jobs that were related to the, uh, the Khilafah or to the, to the president. You can't have a president who does not have someone to keep secrets, what we would call the public secrets, the secrets of a government. Today, you have a whole department <laughs> that has classified documents and unclassified documents. Classified documents contain information and data that cannot be shared. And it has to... There has to be like a specific period of time that can pass before this information can be unclassified anymore and they, they're out to the public. So we had Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman radiallahu ta'ala an, that, that man, he was named by many as al-Khatib al-Baghdadi and ibn Hajj al-Asqalani named Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman. They said, Kana katimu sirrin Nabi sallallahu He used to keep the secrets of the Prophet sallallahu He sallallahu gave him a, a list, I mean orally, of the names of the munafiqeen, the hypocrites. Because there were ahkam related to the munafiqeen. Their zakah would be accepted, their sadaqah would be accepted, and all of these things. And Hudayfa radiallahu did not disclose the names even after the Prophet sallallahu to Umar radiallahu Can you imagine? And when you work with a government, and if that government is not in power anymore, you should not disclose the secrets of that government to the new government. You should not. Unless you're appointed by the new government and it is... It is something to, to be to, that's, that's directly related to the, the welfare of the, of the government. But if it's something to do with, with your job and you, you, leave, you leave a, a, a company, if you have any files to do with that company, you can't actually, if you are a, a lawyer, for example, and you are working of, in, in favor, you're presenting one person, you can't represent his opponent for like a specific number of years. Why? Because of that uh, clash of, of interest. There was someone who's called Al-Adhin. His job is Al-Adhin from the word Ibn. Ibn means permission. Al-Adhin or Al-Hajib is an, I, I would say, access controller. <laughs> access controller is someone who controls access to the Prophet 
Look, you can't just open the door. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> I have a chat with the Prophet. It doesn't work like that. You need to ask someone, can I go in? It's like secretary. You don't go and see the president without having an appointment. You have to have an appointment and then you go there and then you tell them, well, I have an appointment. Well, they will ask you. So the person who asks you or the person who gives you access is called Al-Adhin. As in the hadith, Anas and Bilal ibn Rabah radiallahu used to sit at the door of the Prophet and take shifts. So Anas would sit, let's say, during the day. Bilal would sit during the night. Bilal would sit during the day. Anas would sit during the night. People would come and seek permission if they can go in. And then Anas would say, hold on, let me go in. And he would ask the Prophet ﷺ, such and such is at the door. Would you allow, allow them to come in or not? Sometimes people would actually, would it be, were allowed permission. Ibn Dhilhiyan al-Kilabi, a man, he came to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ did not uh, give, him, give him any access. And that was even used by Abu Bakr after. So Abu Bakr had uh, a man called Sharif. That was his hajib, that was his adhin, that was his access controller. Umar had a man called Yarfa' and Sayyidina Uthman had a man called Himran and Sayyidina Ali had two people, Bishr and Qumbar. Both of them were the Uthan of Sayyidina Ali. Then you have the servants and the Prophet servants don't necessarily need to be slaves. They are people who serve the Prophet Who would, like you, you have a scholar for example, and he has a servant, someone who is with him. Uh, uh, he needs a cup of water, he will get it for him. He prepares his, his office for him, he prepares the ink and the, and the paper, helping the individual. And he وسلم, had many, many people. Of them we can... Uh, Count Anas radiallahu an, and Hind ibn Haritha, that's a man, and uh, Asma ibn Taharitha, that's a lady, and possibly she was, she was quite young, uh, Rabi'ah ibn Ka'b, Zayd ibn Haritha, as we know, uh, and Sayyidina Usama, who was the son of Zayd ibn Haritha, Abu Rafi' al Qibti, he, uh, he was a Copt from Egypt, came and accepted Islam, Shukran, and Anjasha. Who's known to uh, f- for the famous hadith? He used to walk behind the camels and and sing for the camels, and the camels started moving. And the, there were ladies on the camels, so the Prophet said, "Be easy, for uh, for the ladies will will uh, will be broken <laughs> if the camels move move and, and run." And Ma'bur Al Qibti as well, up to 30, 31 servants who would look after the needs of the Prophet We had also a few other individuals who had who had. And, and that only sh- who had specific things they they were doing, and it just shows the love the Sahaba had for the Prophet uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud his main job was to wake the Prophet to wake him up when he sleeps, to wake him up at Fajr time, to wake him. You know when you nowadays you use your alarm clocks to wake you up. Or you tell someone, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud's main job was to wake the Prophet ﷺ up because he's a man of public engagement, so he has to keep his time as well. Uh, to cover the Prophet ﷺ when bathing. Remember, in those days, there was no, there was no toilets as we, 
would call them now so Sayyidina Abdullah bin Saud would cover the Prophet Sallallahu from her and remember Abdullah bin Saud was not was not old to lead his camel there was also someone who would carry the sandals of the Prophet <laughs> and someone who would keep the pillow of the Prophet Sallallahu well when they are traveling he would keep the pillow of the Prophet Sallallahu someone who keeps the siwak for the Prophet Sallallahu so whenever he needs his siwak it's available there was what we would call today uh, and, and, and remember this is, this is something very very interesting as well that is uh, Ibn Sa'ad, Ibn Ziyad, Mawla Ayash Ibn Abi Rabi'ah he said two things two things the Prophet ﷺ never assigned to people like he would assign things to people like his siwak, his pillow but two things he never assigned to anyone one of them is wudu at night he wouldn't assign to anyone to take care of preparing the water for him at night. He would, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, before he goes to sleep, he would prepare his water, cover it when he wakes up for his qiyamul layl. That's something very intimate. His wudu water would be there. And giving charity. He wouldn't give someone to go and give charity. When someone comes and asks him directly, he would give him personally, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There was also what we would call uh, chief of protocol, mudir <laughs> tashrifat the chief of protocol that was Sayyidina Abu Bakr how remember that Arabs were people who did not know how to behave in front of a in front of a prophet or a man in such a position so Sayyidina Abu Bakr gave you was assigned to give them a form of training nowadays when you uh, some, some years ago there was an American president here and uh, his wife had to go through a training on how to speak to the queen <laughs> that she should not start a conversation with the queen until the queen asks her I think it was Obama and, and that how like which uh, glass should she take <laughs> and if she's sitting which, which place should she sit which chair should she sit on Next to the queen, is it like the left side or the right side? All of these etiquettes, and you're talking about a wife of a president. Why? Because it relates to dealing with royalty. This is something that that uh, the people in other countries sometimes they don't have. So Abu Bakr ta'ala an, as is mentioned by uh, Abu Saud, Mufassir, when delegations used to come to the Prophet Abu Bakr used to send them to someone to teach them how to greet him. Remember, Arabs used to say, Im sabahan. Like what we could, would call today, good morning. Im sabahan. Or Im masa'an. Like good evening. That was their greeting. So they were taught how to greet the Prophet ﷺ in a proper way. Uh, and how to be calm and observe protocol in his presence. When you sit with, a, with, with someone, your answers should be, uh, to the questions that they ask you should not volunteer answers you should not speak a lot you don't start talking about yourself how I, uh, I, I remember we visited one of the mashaykh in Turkey and throughout the, 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 uh, the gathering everyone was keen to ask the sheikh for ijazah and uh, I felt awkward about asking him this is the first meeting we have with the sheikh so we just like listening to what he had to say and he asked some questions, we answered. And then we left. When we left, we asked the person who took us there. said, you know, a lot of people wanted to have ijazah, but 
we didn't ask the Sheikh. I said, good that you didn't ask him. He feels very annoyed when people ask him for ijazah in the first meeting. <laughs> he said, three years I have been with him, and only when he said, I write an ijazah for you, I said, okay. Why? Because the Sheikh possibly had experiences before that were quite annoying. People coming and taking ijazah, people calling the, over the phone and stuff like that. A famous Syrian Sheikh. Uh, moving from the uh, the Khilafah and the adjacent jobs that are related to the to the Khilafah, uh, talking about religious affairs. There is something before we talk about the religious affairs that is very very essential and, and important, is that anyone who has the religious qualification and the knowledge qualification. We mean by religious qualification, a person who has diana, he is religious, he's pious, he's righteous, and he has the knowledge, regardless of their tribe, regardless of their race, regardless of their color, regardless of anything, should be or can be appointed in a religious position. But the ulama said, a, a pervert or an immoral individual, even if he has knowledge, is not suitable for religious position. Like you should not appoint as an imam someone who is excellent in his intellectual knowledge, but he is not practicing. Because it gives him access to people's secrets and lives and can find a lot of disruption in the society today happens because we never look into these uh, individuals. Uh, integrity. Remember, one of the kind of uh, unofficial jobs was to narrate the hadiths of the Prophet ﷺ. And the ulama have introduced the science of impugnment and validation. Ilm al-jarh wa ta'adil. To impugn people who don't have moral integrity and to validate people who had the moral integrity, saying this qualifies and this disqualifies. For what? For narrating the hadiths of the Prophet Because it's in a man. And it is something that people will, play, will, will place importance on when they start uh, acting or, or doing their religious jobs. Looking at the, the Medinian society and seeing how active the Medinian society was. You know, when you see a lot of uh, jobs that relate to education, especially religious education, you can realize that the society was... Remember, before the Prophet ﷺ came to uh, Medina... Uh, the, the level of education was very, very low. Remember that Arabs have always been real, uh, recognized and, and described as Ummatun Ummiyya. They were like a nation or a community that is Ummi. Ummi comes from the word Um, mother. Al Ummi is someone who remains in the state in which his mom has given him birth. <laughs> like his mother has given birth to him and he remains like that. No education. No, let, uh, like he hasn't started learning letters or anything like that. We always translate it as unlettered. Someone who does not know how to read and write. They call him Ummi. Because he's just like, he remains as his mom has given birth to him. So, moving from this Ummi, this Ummiyin, الأمين, as the Quran says, it is he who has sent to the Ummiyin, a messenger from amongst themselves. When you find an Ummatun Ummiyya, who could not know writing and reading, who could not know calculation, like we don't write and we don't calculate, as he وسلم, described them at that time. And then you realize all of a sudden, like this big shift of having 
so many Quran teachers. So Ahlul Sufa, for example, Ahlul Sufa, you had Quran teachers, you had writing teachers, you had teacher for women, you had muftis, you had dream interpreters. <laughs> that was a, a job. You had question presenter. Someone presenting questions to the mufti or to the judge or to the teacher. So people don't just like stand up and present their questions. Someone who collects the questions and he will present them. Possibly rewarding the questions sometimes. Uh, these were mainly educa religious education. So we can look at these and say that these are religious education. Then well, you had the... No, I'm sorry. If it was by appointment, yes, they, they were paid for. If it's by appointment, they were paid for. And some of it was actually voluntary as well. So, so some the, the Quran teachers would, it, it would be no more charge for that? Yes, yes. And, 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 and we will, uh, we, have, uh, we have texts where the Prophet said, The best thing that you, have to, you can take. We're paid for, by the way, not necessarily by the students, but paid for by the state. Paid for by, from the ata the Prophet would give them. Because you can't just appoint someone to do a job, and then he has family as well. So Ahlul Sufa, they were given from the ata that used to come to the Prophet So you have the appointed Imam, Ramadan Imam, and we'll, we'll look at all each and every one of these. The Mu'azzins. The timekeeper, which we call the muwakit, person who has the time, he observes the movement of the sun to know this is the time of Salatul Dhuhr, this is the time of Salatul Asr. The silence commander, the person who commands silence. And then you have the prayer mat keeper, making sure that the prayer mat that is, that is used by the imam is clean. <laughs> right? And you have the anaza, or what we would call the staff keeper, the staff keeper, the staff keeper. Remember, in the, in those days, the Prophet Sallallahu used to lead, and he Sallallahu had a anaza. Anaza is like a short staff that he used sometimes to put right in front of him to indicate that he is in salah. If you decide to pray in the middle of the desert, and if you pray like the Malikiya with your hands down, sadly. <laughs> people will not observe that you are actually in salah. Isn't it? You're standing like this and you're not closing your eyes or anything. You just... So people might think that you are just standing. So they would pass right in front of you. But when you put a stick a meter away from you or two-thirds of a meter away from you, that means you're saying to people, I'm in salah. Don't pass between this place and my place. Nowadays we don't need that anymore because we have the carpets in the masjid. And we have the lines. They are actually our barriers. So the person who carries the anaza is someone who's coming to introduce the imam. When the Salatul Jama'ah is on and the imam is coming, when you see the, the carrier of the anaza coming in, even putting it or coming with the prayer mat, you, you realize that the imam is, on, is, is coming. You know, in courts, for example, they have the clerks. They come before the judges to say, well, to setting, setting the scene. These were, and also you had the light carer, someone who cares for the light, 
And we will see that uh, in the description of that individual, that in the society of the Prophet wasallam, there was a shift from making fires as a source of light to candles. Candles. And that was something that was started to be used during the, time, time, the, during the lifetime of the Prophet wasallam. The mubakhir, the perfumer. Someone who burns bakhur and perfumes the masjid of the Prophet wasallam. That was a job. You know, nowadays in our masjid, we need to keep the masjid clean and make sure that the masjid smells good as well. And then you had the rubbish collector, someone who collects the rubbish from the masjid and from, especially from the masjid and obviously from the streets. That was a, that was a, a job of everyone to clean around his house. That was something the Prophet ﷺ actually engaged the community in. That people have to make sure that their own gardens are clean. Their own houses are clean. Outside in the streets as well. And then you had the noise controller. So you had the silence commander and then you had also the noise controller. The difference between them. The silence commander makes sure that there is silence in the masjid. Noise controller would be specifically focused on individuals who come from outside Medina. Who, does, who don't know. What is going on? Like the etiquettes. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anh saw two men arguing and chit-chatting in the masjid. And he said like, where are you from? They said, from At-Taib. He said, had I known that you are from Medina, you would be in big trouble. <laughs> but I, I realize now that you don't know the system here. And these were, uh, you have also the line straightener. <laughs> Someone who would go between the lines and make sure that people are straight. Not that they are sticking to each other but they are straight these were mainly service jobs so we can say that under religious affairs we had educational jobs and we had also service jobs we had also uh, amongst the, the religious affairs the hajj leader the prophet ﷺ had some hajj delegations send, he sent hajj delegations during his lifetime he did one hajj only but before that he sent Abu Bakr and obviously when he did his Hajj وسلم, he did not he led the community but there was like a hundred thousand people so he didn't lead a hundred thousand typically a hundred thousand Sahaba so with a hundred thousand Sahaba in one place you needed Hajj leaders you needed also what we would call the camels in charge that person the camels in charge is a man who's responsible for observing the camels that will be used for sacrifice the Hajj Making sure that it is fed, it is offered water, it's in a good condition, so that when it is being slaughtered, it's actually fit for, for being slaughtered. And the Kaaba custodian, so one whose responsibility is to carry the keys of the Kaaba and to be the custodian of the Kaaba. That was also something that's administrative job. That's mainly a job of administration because here... Uh, but it's kind of a religious administration. Now we'll take each and every one of them. If you, if you, uh, I want you to to take notes. But if you if you didn't manage to take all the notes, don't worry. I'll send a copy of this. Inshallah, a PDF review. Let's say that uh, uh, we mentioned before, an open sinner or a fasiq is not qualified for a, a religious job, even if he is from Quraysh. This is the what the ulama of the past have actually said. Now let's look at the Quran teach. 
when we talk about Quran teachers, we realize that Medina, Medina was a very active society when it comes to education. We had what we would call resident teachers. We had resident teacher. I mean by resident teachers, these are individuals whose main job is to teach the Quran. And they were Ahlul Sufa. Abu Huraira, Salman al-Farisi, and all of these people. What were they doing? They were in the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, learning and teaching. So they were Quran teachers. And the Prophet ﷺ also sent, it's narrated from a Sahabi called Wardan. He said, the Prophet ﷺ sent me to Aban ibn Sa'id to teach me the Quran and uh, Ibn Tha'laba narrated that the Prophet ﷺ sent him to Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. You see, the Prophet ﷺ is sending students. Send this man Wardan to Aban ibn Sa'id and he said, teach him the Quran. Sent Ibn Tha'laba to Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and he said Sallallahu Alaihi to the man, دفعتك إلى رجل يحسن تعليمك وأدبك. I sent you to a man who can teach you well and who can discipline you well. So that's a, that's a job. That means Abu Ubaidah was known to be a Quran teacher. Also, one of the things that show how the Medinian society was very active in learning is encouraging people to teach their neighbors. <laughs> the Prophet ﷺ was encouraging the residents of Medina to learn from their neighbors and to teach their neighbors. Al-Haythami narrates, the Prophet ﷺ said, مَا بَالُ أَقْوَامٍ لَا يَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْ جِيرَانِهِمْ وَلَا يَتَفَقَّهُونَ وَلَا يَتَّعِظُونَ How come that there are people among us who don't learn from their neighbors? They don't have fiqh, they take, don't take fiqh and they don't take admonition from them. قَالُوا أَنُفَطِّنُ غَيْرَنَا The Sahaba said, are we supposed to teach others? Like, do we teach each other? Are we, do we have that permission? So he repeated the same saying. And he's, مَا بَالُ أَقْوَامٍ لَا يَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْ جِرَانِهِمْ وَلَا يَتَفَقَّهُونَ وَلَا يَتَّعِظُونَ the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he had a tribe from uh, Yemen called the Al-Ash'ariyin. They are the people of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anh. These people were of knowledge, and he sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as some 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 ulama say, uh, he was talking about them in that hadith. Because they had neighbors who were like very simple Bedouins and they didn't teach them. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, like, how come that you, you're not teaching them? So they started teaching them. The third thing is sending delegations of Quran teachers to different, not to outside Medina. He sent Mus'ab radiallahu ta'ala an, after Aqaba, we, we, we all know that Mus'ab bin Umar radiallahu an came to Medina. To lead, we know that he was leading them in Jum'ah and he was doing a lot of things and he was teaching them. But what was the name of Mus'ab? What was his title? Did they call him Al Ustad? Huh? Did they call him uh, the Sheikh? You know what was his title? Al Muqri'. Al Muqri'. Al Muqri' is the, the one who teaches how to recite. <laughs> that was his name. Al Muqri' Mus'ab ibn Umar. He also assigned. Mu'adh ibn Jabal and Attab ibn Usaid when he came to Mecca in the 8th year after the Hijrah and he went back to Medina well he left a huge, a huge community in Mecca all of them accepted Islam recently so they needed some teachers remember the Meccans were new to Islam 
So he left Mu'adh ibn Jabal and Attab ibn Usaid to teach people the deen and Quran. He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, also, he assigned teachers. He assigned teachers. Assigning teachers, Ibn Ishaq mentions in the biography of Rafi' ibn Malik, that he made the Prophet, sallallahu in Aqaba, فَأَعْطَاهُ مَا أُنزِلَ عَلَيْهِ فِي الْعَشْرِ سِنِينَ The Prophet وسلم, taught this man, Rafi' ibn Malik, he taught him the revelation that he learned in 10 years. He taught it to him. فَقَدِمَ بِهِ الْمَدِينَةِ And he said, you take that and go back to Medina and teach. So that's an assignment. One of the things that show us, relates to your question, is listing the Huffad making lists of who are the Hafad of Medina so that when someone, like today, you make lists of the Qur'an teachers in London, for example, so that you know whom to send people to. Or what we would have today as Niqabat al-Qurra, the syndicate of the reciters, Niqabat al-Wa'ad, the syndicate of the, the Fuqaha. You know who are the ulama and who are the Hafad. But for the Qur'an teachers, listing the Hafad. So the Prophet ﷺ made his time, at a certain point at his time, there were six people who have completed the memorization of the Quran. Ubayy ibn Ka'b, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abu Zayd, Mu'adh, Abu Darda, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, and uh, a, a lady, Umm Waraqah bint Abdullah ibn Al-Harith. Umm Waraqah is famous for the hadith that causes so much uh, controversy that this woman who has memorized the Qur'an, was allowed by the Prophet ﷺ to lead the people in her house, including the men, in Salah. That woman was given permission by the Prophet ﷺ to lead the men, to lead her family. And there are statements in versions of the hadith that say that there was men amongst them, but they couldn't read as good as her, so she was leading them. That's why there is so much controversy about can women lead people, men in prayer or not. Is this hadith specific to Umm Waraqa? Is it something given permission only to her? Or is it Aam? And obviously the Jumhur, the view of the Jumhur is no. It is, it is, it is something specific to Umm Waraqa, radiallahu ta'ala. Something that is very, very interesting as well is... There was what we would call today reciter's house. I mean like reciter's school. There was reciter's school. The, the, which we would call Darul Qurra. Ibn Umm Maktoum. We know who Ibn Umm Maktoum is. Abdullah Ibn Umm Maktoum, the blind Sahabi. He came with Mus'ab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And they said, فَنَزَلَ دَارَ الْقُرَّاءِ He stayed in the house of the Qurra. So that means there was a dar, there was a house that is assigned for the Qurra, where they receive their students and they teach, and they, like a school for teaching the Qur'an. And it had adjacent rooms for the teachers to come and stay there. فَنَزَلَ دَارَ الْقُرَّاءِ And that was the house of Makhrama ibn Nawfal. It was donated, possibly, to become to be used as Darul Qurra. For writing teachers, like people who could teach how to write, there was generally, generally, an inclination towards teaching how to write. Abdullah ibn Sa'id ibn al-As, Abdullah ibn Sa'id ibn al-As used to teach, Ubad ibn al-Samid taught the people of As-Suffa. 
So all the people of As-Suffa who are between 70 to 140 or 200 people, they were learning how to read and write from Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala an. It's even mentioned that that writing did not multiply until the Prophet sallallahu come to Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara like one year after his arrival in Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had 42 scribes, 42 people who were well equipped whenever they are asked to come and write they would be able to come and write whether they are writing the Quran or they are writing messages or they are writing recordings things or they are writing financial uh, things and there were even female teachers there were even female teachers Ash-Shifa Umm Sulaiman bint Abi Hatma she was commanded to teach a Sayyida Hafsa radiallahu ta'ala anha that's the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so teaching Ahlul Sufa there was even as we all know there was even teaching uh, teachers from amongst non-Muslims after the battle of Badr those who were taken as captives their manumission to pay for their manumission they were commanded to teach if they can't pay the ransom to gain their freedom they can teach each one can teach 10 people how to read and write and that would be their manumission Urwa ibn Zubair speaks about how women and this is something also very very interesting that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam you see, Ash-Shifa narrated that the Prophet saw her with Hafsa and said to her, why don't you teach her the dua of side pain as you taught her writing? As you taught her writing. So Ash-Shifa was her teacher, was the teacher of Sayyidah Hafsa radiallahu ta'ala anha. Uh, even dedicating a day to the teaching of women, Urwa ibn Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anha said, I have not seen someone who knows halal and haram and knowledge and poetry and medicine better than Aisha radiallahu ta'ala loads of women Umm Sulaim, Fatima bin Qais, Umm darda Sha'wana and many others who actually many many women in in fact at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam the women who said poetry who were well equipped to say poetry were more than 30 women more than 30 women and Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, wrote a, comp- a, a compilation on the, the Ima' the slave girls who could say poetry, called The Muftis, the job of the Ifta'. Number one, the, a limited number of the companions used to issue fatwas. Because, you see, when it comes to teaching the Qur'an, and teaching reading and writing we find multiplicity of people because when it comes to teaching the Quran what's the margin of making mistakes very limited Tajweed teachers but when it comes to fatwa that requires a lot of work that requires a lot of dedication that requires mastering a lot of tools so the muftun the muftis during the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were very very limited 11 to 14 of 100,000 Sahabi were allowed only to give fatwa who dared to give fatwa during the time the lifetime of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam people were allowed to seek fatwa from these individuals and when they are unhappy with that fatwa they can appeal to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, was not accessible to each and every one. Uh, in the muwatta of Imam Malik radiyallahu ta'ala an, two men disputed in front of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and one of them said, "Inni sa'altu ahl al-ilmi." I asked the people of knowledge. He's saying to the Prophet sallallahu And they told me. I asked the people of knowledge and they told me. That means he has, is now appealing to the Prophet sallallahu I asked people before you but they told me this. So we can actually use this to prove that courts of appeal had a form. Like there was a form of courts of appeal during the lifetime of the Prophet sallallahu So we had the khulafa. Ibn Mas'ud, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf, Zayd ibn Thabit. There was also a job. These were the muftis during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. There was also individuals who will uh, mediate between the people who have issues and the Prophet ﷺ. So they, they would ask Ali radiallahu anhu or Salman uh, al-Farisi or Thabit uh, and, and others they would ask, people would ask them to present their case to the Prophet ﷺ, like lawyers. They present their case on behalf of these individuals. There was also specialization in, in, the, fatwa, uh, in, in the fatwa job. So not everyone would be able, from the Sahaba, can give fatwa on everything. Sayyidina Zayd ibn Thabit and Sayyidina Ubayy ibn Ka'am, each one had a job. Zayd ibn Thabit, as the Prophet ﷺ said, Afradukum Zayd. Like the one who is very well versed in Fara'id, Fara'id is a state division, is Zayd ibn Thabit. So if you have an estate division issue, something to do with inheritance, go to Zayd ibn Thabit. Aqdaakum Ali, the best of you in Qada, Qada is settlement. Then Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu A'lamukum bil halali wal haram, Mu'ad, the one who knows halal and haram is Mu'ad. You see that? That's specialization. So you don't just carry any fatwa to any mufti. Well, there is no faqih who knows all areas. Like today, we have the mufti who is specialist in Islamic finance. We have a mufti who is a specialist in like day-to-day life. Any imam, yes, can give you fatwa regarding uh, halal and haram in terms of like ibadah, even ibadat. Like day-to-day ibadat, is my wudu valid, is my siyam valid, all of these things. But there are fatwa that you can't have like a, a direct answer from the imam. If you have an issue that relates to finance, you need a mufti who has specialism in Islamic finance or in finance. Any everyday mufti will not be able to give you fatwa. Doesn't take down his position, but that's not his area. He hasn't read enough uh, medical issues. That's a very specialist branch of fatwa, like euthanasia and clinical deaths and all of these things and organ donation, and all of these things. They are they have. Things, especially things that haven't settled yet between the ulama. Issues like organ donation has settled down. But there are other things that haven't settled down yet that has loads of intricacies within them that requires a specialist mufti. And that actually existed at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Even in dream interpretation. Nowadays people just like, they, they, they post their dreams online. Ask them for... for, for uh, for interpretation for that. At the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and this is this is this is uh, very, very interesting. The Prophet said, Abu Bakr. 
like uh, the most learned of dream interpretation among us, my community is Abu Bakr and Asma bin Dumais. Well, Asma bin Dumais. That's in Sahih. That's an authentic hadith. The Sahih. He, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, even commanded Abu Bakr to interpret dreams for him <laughs> to show the validity of that. So not every sheikh can just like give dream interpretation. Not every individual can give dream interpretation. It's a ilm. There is ilm there. It's not by speculation. Well, there is part of it is hiba is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But big part of it is also learning. Or you pick up a, a book like الأحلام, the dream interpretation of Ibn Sirin, even though that's proving that this book is written by Ibn Sirin is controversial, by the way. There is controversy whether Ibn Sirin actually wrote that book or not. <laughs> so you, it is disputable. But anyway, picking up a book and saying, well, oh, I have seen a cat in my dream, or I have seen a snake in my dream. What's a, what, what could be a good thing for someone might be the opposite to somebody else. Abu Bakr anhu interpreted for Sayyidina Rasulullah And there is a, even something very, very interesting here, which is like a, an ijaza huh? in dream interpretation. <laughs> An ijaza in dream interpretation that shows you that you can't just go and uh, uh, interpret dreams. Ibn Sirin, the famous Muhammad Ibn Sirin, one of the tabi'in, he took dream interpretation, he says, from Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib. And Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib took it from Asma' bin Umais. And Asma' bin Umais took it from, huh? from her father or from the Prophet sallallahu Remember that the Prophet said Asma bin Dumais. So the ijazah was given to Asma, and Asma gave it to Sa'id, and Sa'id gave it to Ibn Sirin. This is mentioned from Al Waqidi, mentioned by Ibn Sa'ad. So that's that's something also very, very important. Question presenter. We mentioned before that Thabit ibn Mu'ad and Ali ibn Abi Talib anhum, they, they used to ask on behalf of others. It's what we would call the question presenter. Looking at the appointed Imam. The Prophet ﷺ used to assign individuals as imams. He used to assign individuals as imams. He would, sallallahu alaihi assign when when a leader is sent, he is assigned as an imam. So when he sends, for example, a leader of a delegation, or when he sends a leader of an uh, a battalion, or when he sends someone to uh, a tribe to teach them Quran He would say you become their imam During his last uh, Days وسلم, On earth He appointed Abu Bakr عنه, As an imam He said Muru Abu Bakr Command Abu Bakr to, to lead people in prayer And uh, remember how important Was that to indicate to the sahaba That Abu Bakr is to be chosen As the khalifa after the Prophet ﷺ. They said Radiyahu lidinina like he accepted him for the matters of Adin, to lead us in the matters of Adin. Like, would we accept him for the matters of our dunya? If the Prophet said to him, lead them in salah. And that's the most important thing in the life of a believer. Why shouldn't we accept him as a Khalifa in the matters of our dunya? There was Ramadan Imam. This is very, very interesting as well. Like, an Imam, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala an, used to gather people under Ubay ibn Ka'b radiallahu ta'ala an. So Sayyidina Ubay ibn Ka'b radiallahu ta'ala an was there to lead people in in 
taraweeh in, in, in Ramadan. Even during that, sometimes during the lifetime of the Prophet And obviously we know the Mu'addin. There were seven Mu'addins for the Prophet Bilal, we only know Bilal, but there was more than that. And a man called Abu Mahdura, Abu Mahdura, and Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, he used to make the adhan late at night, like an hour before Fajr or something. You know, like the adhan they make in Haram to wake to tell people this is the time of Qiyam. So Ibn Umm Maktoum, because he was blind, he wouldn't be able to distinguish the Fajr. So he would make the adhan. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he realized that people stopped eating in Ramadan at the time of Ibn Umm Maktoum, he said, Inna Ibn Umm Maktoum yu'adhinu bilayl. He makes the adhan still. The night is on. So you can keep eating and drinking until the Bilal, until you hear Bilal. Bilal, that's the Fajr. That's the Adhan of Fajr. The previous Adhan, that's not Adhan of Fajr. That's just an Adhan to tell you that Fajr is coming. You can wake up for Qiyam. Zayd, uh, Ziyad ibn, ha- ibn al-Harith, radiyallahu an, al-Sa'di, al-Sada'i, afwan, Ziyad ibn, ibn al-Harith al-Sada'i, and uh, Sa'ad al-Qird. And this man, Sa'ad al-Qird, we will, we will know later why was he called al-Qird. Uh, with a va and Abdul Aziz uh, uh, ibn al-Asam and Thawban who was a freed slave of the Prophet sallallahu the timekeeper Bilal radiyallahu ta'ala an uh, in the hadith qala sallallahu alayhi wa Bilal ikla lana al-layl ikla lana al-layl kala in Arabic means to to take care of something or to observe closely qul man yakla'ukum bil-layl wa nahar say who it who is he that takes care of you when you are at night <laughs> so taking care of the night means observe the night keep an eye on the night keep an eye on the night observe the dawn like observe the night so that the night when the night is over and the dawn the crack of the dawn starts you wake us up so that's the muwaqid also we had the silence commander the individual who used to make sure that there is there is silence. You know, before you, you give a, khat, a khatib gives a khutbah or a speech or something, you need to make sure that everyone is listening. That's why isti'adah, a'udhu billahi min shaytan al-rajim, is there to alert people to become silent. The Prophet sallallahu Jarir ibn Abdullah al-Bajali, radiyallahu anhu. Jarir ibn Abdullah al-Bajali, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, was a leader of Bujayla, his own tribe. And he was a man of respect, a leader. So the Prophet said to him, Istansit li nas in Hajjat al-Wada'a, in the farewell pilgrimage, the Prophet said to him, Seek people's silence for me. Like, go around and say to people, Shh, listen, listen, listen. Rabi' ibn Umayyah ibn Khalif, he was asked to ask loudly in the farewell pilgrimage as well. That's, Qala, uh, to, to him, Usruh ayyuhan nas atadruna, Imam al-Tabarani narrated The Prophet said to him Loudly say to people Do you know which month is this? And then people would listen And then once they listen He would hand over to the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And Umar ibn al-Khattab Radiallahu ta'ala Also He gathered people To listen to the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam The prayer mat keeper The individual Who keeps the uh, the prayer mat of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He said to Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha, "Hand over the khumra to me. Hati lil khumra. Khumra, khamra in Arabic, 
means to cover. So the khumra was a, a piece of cloth that the Prophet ﷺ would put in front of him and pray on it. And Maimunah radiallahu anha narrated also that we used to spread it for him وسلم, when we were in our menses. What is the point of actually having a prayer mat even though he said when the place that you are praying in is most likely unclean if, if you are sure that it's an unclean place you cannot pray in it. Right? But if you are in doubt it is recommended to seek the purity of the place. That is the least the least that is sought is a place that is enough to place your hands and place your knees and place the tips of your toes. Huh? As, uh, uh, Ibn Ajir says, Like the 11 recommended actions of the wudu start with tasmiyah to say bismillah at the beginning, to say to make sure that you pray in a place that is clean, to choose a clean spot. So, uh, if the place is in, if you are in doubt about the place, making sure that there is a prayer mat that is spread as well. Amongst the the jobs that uh, relate to uh, religious affairs as well is the carrier of the anaza. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It used to be carried in front of him uh, to the prayer. You know when uh, you have a an important person walking, and then someone in front of them is carrying a small a small stick or a, a sword or something to indicate that that an important individual is coming. This is like the start of salah. And Bilal radiallahu ta'ala an used to carry it specifically, specifically on Eid day. So that's, that's something also to prepare people mentally for the salah and to uh, rain prayer place. This is a, a tradition we have lost today but still exists in many Muslim countries if any of you has been to the Far East and South Africa and these places you find always a long stick next to the member and in some madhahib they pray with what they replace the stick with what with a sword <laughs> with a sword like carrying a sword the imam is carrying a sword because it's a form of it's a form of of a position and not even in the, it's not even a tradition within Islam, even even in other religions, like you have these staffs, long high staffs that are carried by priests, carried by monks, carried by speakers. And you you find that tradition throughout the whole the whole uh, uh, religious religious uh, tradition. We even have within our tradition what we would call المسلسل بأخذ العصا the hadith that has a silsila, a chain of receiving a staff or carrying a staff like the, the staff that uh, we carry sometimes is taken with a chain from some of our specific teachers who have actually given us ijaza to carry the staff and they have taken a staff from their teachers They're, whether they have taken it completely or they have given it to them to hold and they took it back from them but to give them the chain of carrying the staff uh, all the way back to the Prophet Ibrahim. take the asa, take the staff for it's the sunnah of your father Ibrahim the light carer, the person who whose job is to make sure that there is light in the Masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, 
there, there was a man who uh, we call him Al-Musrij in Arabic. A man called Fath. Fath, he uh, was a slave of Abu Tamim al-Dari, radiallahu anhu. And we know that Abu Tamim al-Dari comes from the northern part of, uh, of the Arabian Peninsula, so he's close to the Byzantine Empire. So he had experience with using candles and all of these things. So he brought this uh, slave and he, uh, he assigned him, he freed him, and he assigned him to the job of uh, making, making sure that there is light in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ changed the name of this young man, called him Siraj. Siraj in Arabic means uh, light. Uh, and he made dua for him ﷺ. The perfumer, the Mubakhir, Nu'aym ibn Abdullah al-Muzani, he says that him and his father used to uh, perfume the Prophet ﷺ's masjid. So that was a job that they, they had as well. Rubbish collector. We all know the hadith in Bukhari. The woman, Umm Mihjan, uh, she used to clean the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ and collect the rubbish. And when she passed away, the Prophet ﷺ said, where is she? Where is this woman, Umm Mihjan? And they said, Ya Rasulullah, she passed away. He said, why didn't you tell me that, uh, that she passed away? Where is she? He said, Ya Rasulullah, you were asleep when she passed away. We didn't want to bother you and wake you up. So he went to her grave and he offered the janazah there. And in some narrations he made dua uh, upon her grave. Noise controller. Sa'ib ibn Yazid narrated that Umar called him to bring two men. And he said, bring these two men to me. When they were asked where they, where they were from, and they said that they are from Aqtaif, he said, if you were Medinians, I would have disciplined you. Why? Because... They did not know the system. They didn't know the system in the, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ and in Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara. One important thing as well when, when we talk about the Mu'addin is that Bilal ta'ala anh, used to make the adhan from a high place. He would make the adhan in the masjid. Uh, sometimes he would make the adhan from the top of a house next to the masjid. كان أذن على بيتن and that house belonged to a woman from Banu Najjar. And sometimes he would make the adhan from top of a pillar in the qibla of the masjid, so a high place. And sometimes on a small minaret in the house of Hafsa radiallahu ta'ala anha. So a noise controller is one of the jobs as well. The line straightener, Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anha, was actually or uh, assigned with that job, as Imam Ahmad narrates. Talking about the people who had a, a job of administration, some uh, administrative jobs. Hajj leader, in Kamil, in Kamil's in charge, and the Kaaba custodian. Attab ibn Usaid, we mentioned before, Attab ibn Usaid and Mu'adh ibn Jabal. They were assigned by the Prophet ﷺ to teach the people in Mecca. Attab ibn Usaid was actually assigned as a Hajj leader in the 8th year after the Hijrah and there is something very very interesting that Attab was 21 and Mus'ab when he sent him to Al-Madin Al-Munawwara he was something like 18 in fact when we look to many of the jobs the Prophet Sallallahu assigned to people most of these people were actually young especially the jobs that included uh, some form of leadership. So he was training the youth how to take the leadership within within the community. Uh, Mu'adh, radiallahu ta'ala an, 
was teaching people the fiqh of hajj. How old was Mu'adh when he passed away? 36. And Mu'adh died in the 18th after Hijrah. 18th after Hijrah. So Mu'adh during the lifetime of the Prophet was 20-something. Because that's eight years after the Prophet and he was 36. So he must be 28 during the lifetime of the Prophet He must have been 20 when the Prophet migrated to Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara. And Mu'adh was, at that time, he was teaching the fiqh of Hajj during the Hajj of the Prophet Kamil's in charge. Najiyah Al-Khuzai, radiallahu anhu, the Prophet said, your job is to look after the camels. To make sure that if any of these camels that are dedicated to sacrifice, something goes wrong with them. He came and he asked about the sick camels. The Prophet was, was told that one of the camels is actually sick, is not well. So he وسلم, took it away, took it away from from the camel, the sacrificial camels. Uh, Uthman ibn Talha, ibn Abi Talha, and Shayba ibn Uthman, they were the people who had the keys of the Kaaba. And when the Prophet وسلم, came back to Mecca, Al-Mukarrama, he handed the keys back to them. And he said, Fikum talidatun, like it stays with you. No one can take, la No one can take it away from you except at uh, uh, a tyrant and to this day Banu Shayba the tribe of Banu Shayba they are the custodians of the carers of the keys to the Kaaba because the, of the very famous hadith of the Prophet so the leader of this family to this day have the keys of the Kaaba when the king wants to open the Kaaba and enter the Kaaba or wash the Kaaba the annual washing of the Kaaba they would ask the leader of Banu Shayba this, to this day to come, open the Kaaba, let the king wish the Kaaba, and then close it, and they keep the keys. So the Prophet, that, that was something, also uh, one of the religious things. How does that actually help us today, outside the context of the Kaaba? That it is allowable to give someone the keys of a masjid, for example, to one or two or three individuals. One of the things that caused so much trouble today is the keys of the masjid are with everyone. <laughs> You are a trustee of the masjid, you have a key. Or you pray Fajr in the masjid, you have a key. You don't pray in the masjid, but sometimes you like to go there, you have a key. And then you, uh, an uncle wants to use the toilets at the masjid. Oh, why is the masjid closed? These people, there has to be some form of responsibility. The keys cannot be with each and every one in the community. And there has to be, um, we, 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 ha we have to have, people who are assigned to these jobs otherwise there will be chaos in our institutions if you work in a school do teachers huh, who work in a school have keys to the school well they might have a key to their office they might have a key to the drawer in their desk but they don't have a key to the school you don't even have to be in the school after your work hours unless there is a reason for you to do so and you have to justify that. But imagine if every teacher in the school has a key to the school. It will be complete chaos. No, I'm sitting. So are you saying that masjids shouldn't always just be open 24-7? Because 
because I thought that message had to be open to the public for like kind of people. Masjids don't have to be open 24-7, especially in a European context or in a context like today. Why is that? Because, number one, the masjid have shifted from their role in the past to being community centers. A big part of the masjid is a community center and a space for people to pray as well. So whenever people need to pray, there has to be a carer in the masjid to open the masjid. At least, I would say, 15 minutes before the salah and then 15 minutes after the salah. But it has to be assigned times. And during the day, there has to be office hours where the community center in the masjid, whether it's a, a hall or classes or something, where there are activities, the masjid is open. But opening it 24-7, it's not a, the masjid, remember, it's not a service institution. It's not a hospital. It's not a hospital. Like no one, there is emergency. Like, but you, you, you don't have an emergency to go to Salah. Like I remember once we <laughs> in one of the masjid here in London. We just happened to be in the masjid late for some reason. That has nothing, like it was abnormal. And we were closed the masjid and we were leaving. Midnight. I think Ibrahim was with you that day. And then there is this brother who came from the middle of nowhere and he just missed his salat al Isha. He remembered he was going home. I'm going to pray. But brother, it's midnight. He said, No, I need to pray. This is the message. You're stopping me from prayer. I said, No, I'm not stopping you from prayer. But you missed your salat al Isha. You can go and pray at home. You can wake up your wife and, and pray with her. But if we wait for you to go in, take wudu and pray, we will miss the last train to, uh, and I will have to find a taxi or something unless you want to give me a ride to my house. So he had a, a big fight, remember? He was like very angry. Why wouldn't we allow him to pray? It's not us not allowing you to pray. It's midnight. You should understand. If you miss the salah time, what is the point of having these salah times, congregational times? So the masjid is not a service place. It's not like a library. You can't go to the library in the middle of the night if you need to consult something. You consult your own library. You don't go to a public library. And so so it's, it's, it's within this, yes, there has to be opening times, reasonable opening times, and the, the keys shouldn't be with each and every one in the community. In, ca in case something happens in the masjid, there will be a lot of doubt and accusations between people. Yes. Yes, open, open more uh, to accommodate the activities as well. But even if they want to open it for very, till very late, let's say they, they have a function that finishes at midnight, and they agree to do so, and they're not harming the, the, the neighbors as well. Because that's also, lo loads of considerations have to be kept in mind. In Taraweeh, for example, in that, that masjid, the neighbors of the masjid used to complain. 3 a.m. you have Qiyam and the kids go around like like knocking the doors of each and every neighbor of the masjid. People hate Ramadan because of that. <laughs> and you know Muslim kids. They are big troublemakers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so inshallah we'll have a, we'll have an hour uh, lunch break. We'll give you an hour. Preferably 45 minutes. <laughs> But inshallah ta'ala will uh, 
we'll come back and continue with Allah. Yeah. 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 Yeah.